Management Classes Interviews. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Kel Martin with Gamers with Glasses, and I'm here with Brendan Keough, a Brisbane-based critic, journalist, and academic. Um, he is currently a research fellow in the Digital Media Research Center at Queensland University of Technology. He received his PhD from RMIT University's School of Media and Communication for a dissertation about the phenomenological and textual entwinings of players in video games. He has written about the art, industry, and culture of video games for a range of international outlets, including Edge, Polygon, Kotaku, Unwinnable, The New Statesman, Ars Technica, and Overland Literary Journal. He's the author of A Play of Bodies, How We Perceive Video Games, and Killing is Harmless, a critical reading of Spec Ops The Line. And so let's welcome Brendan. How, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? Doing, doing pretty good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll just sort of jump right in um, to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, tell us a little bit um, about your relationship with video games, like, you know, kind of the what got you into video games? Your some of your favorite games, kind of question. You know, um, you know anything you're looking forward to playing? Just you know, uh, what's on your playlist, kind of thing. Yeah, no worries. I, I mean, I guess my background with with video games is just for very traditional, thirty um, something year old male played games my whole life kind of story, which everyone who listens to podcasts about games is probably sick of hearing um but i've like these vague half memories of playing sonic the hedgehog at my cousin's house on the sega mega drive or what americans would call the genesis i believe um i just have memories of like walking to the edge of a crevice and trying to jump over it and not understanding that you have to kind of be moving forward and then jump but you don't jump and then move forward and that's kind of this formative memory i have of like figuring out a video game controller which i think ends up in my book somewhere um and then i grew up having pretty much one generation behind the entire time like finally saved up and bought a super nintendo off the kid who wanted to buy the playstation and bought finally bought a playstation i think around the time people were buying playstation 2s and then eventually got um, a part-time job in high school and managed to keep up finally um, which i think has possibly influenced my i suppose skepticism or cynicism towards excitement about new console generations which i'm feeling fairly acutely right now and do fe feel fairly acutely every five or ten years every time we get a new generation and everyone unfollows me on twitter because i just complain about it um no, I yeah. Think I saw um, yeah sorry oh no i think i think i saw you had a um a picture on twitter with uh all your your console library it was like all the wires and stuff which i can relate to I've got consoles yeah. everywhere yeah, I've got some pretty gross ones. I guess that's an important context is that I've just played console video games my entire life. I've like rarely owned a PC to play video games on, which in recent years I've realized is maybe um, considering my interest in um, especially alternative modes of game making and fringe game making cultures, which we might get to later. Um, I realized just not owning a PC was a real um, hindrance there. So I, I bought a PC recently, which has been a very interesting new experience for me. But yeah, I've just got consoles and I refused to cash in or trade in or get rid of my old consoles. So when people complain about not being able to play a game because it's on a PlayStation 3, I, I don't understand that. Like my PlayStation 3 is is still plugged in. Why wouldn't it be? Um, Minus yeah. two. <laughs> yeah, as it should be. Um, and so looking into the future, I guess. At the moment, I'm just playing a lot of Splunky 2 in the last, I think, five or 10 years. No, probably five years, not 10 years. I've really gone off narrative or story as a driver for why i care about games and it's really just become about 
I think from moment to moment, um, design and game feel and processes of playing a game. So I've really gotten into games that you could play forever, but also only play for five minutes. So yeah. games, so I will play, I've gotten quite into, you know, roguelike style games like um, Spelunky and whatever else was before that, Downwell, games like that, where I can just log on every night, play for half an hour, get a bit further, then stop again. Um, or just large, mindless grinding games where, again, just drop in, do it for a bit and drop out again. While I've kind of gone off largely for AAA narrative-driven style game, um, which I think is just like getting older, having less free time, and also feeling like I've already engaged with all those stories that are still written for 15-year-olds, essentially, which is fine. That's, there's not an issue with that, but I've already engaged with that narrative. Um, so, yeah, so that's one of the kind of game I play now. I'm, like, morbidly curious. I hate to admit for Cyberpunk 20-whatever-year-it-is, 77. I hate I the idea of a game named after a genre. I mean, I know it's named after a board game, but it's still a game named after a genre. Like, I wouldn't buy a game called science fiction. But um, So I hate that. But, like... I don't know. It looks nice. Every time I play the trailers on mute, it looks really appealing. Then I unmute it and it's just the most obnoxious like AAA sports game kind of voiceover and I get uninterested again. And of course, there's all the political issues around the crunching and the um, some weird gender politics and stuff, which are mm-hmm. not great. But but I'm, I'm strangely morbidly curious about it. It's, it's, again, it's summer here, so it would be a good summer break game, I think. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of, yeah, my, that's kind of my relationship with, uh, with cyberpunk also. It's sort of like, I, yeah, I'm kind of like, I don't know. I'm like, I like the aesthetic of it, but like, I don't know. It's kind of, yeah, I'm like, can we just get like a snow crash game? That'd be more fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally. And yeah. like, and it's always worth mentioning. I think that like, there's been like independent game developers, especially, transgender women game developers working twine have made some incredible cyberpunk video games over the last five or 10 years. And AAA is very unlikely to capture the same levels of, um, um, yeah, the actual politics of cyberpunk in the same way, but what AAA can do that maybe those marginal or not marginal fringe game developers can't do is that high level of polish and evocative blade runner style world, which, certainly has a level of appeal to it which mm-hmm. would be nice to walk around in maybe yeah. i guess we'll find out <laughs> yeah no it, it's it's funny that, that you mentioned because um before the interview i was um I'm, I'm currently replaying um mgs4 for um a dissertation chapter and right. and uh you're making me and you're making me think about you know uh, playing when we had all the time in the world to watch these two-hour cutscenes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know and so yeah i think it's interesting you know the pick up and play kind of games you're talking about you know you may were making me think of um like dead cells is something i got into yep. kind of recently i mean i'm terrible at it but you know i, I kept you know keep dying over and over again but but you yeah, know it's nice just to be able to pick it up and play for a few minutes and not be stuck in you know this like three hour movie <laughs> yeah you know, i mean yeah. i know that i know that with the mgs series that's you know like part of the aesthetic but still <laughs> and even without cutscenes, um like i'm a huge fan of like overly indulgent cutscenes in Metal Gear Solid or whatever. Oh, me too. Even even without cutscenes, a game that's driven by the underlying narrative, you you kind of feel like you need to commit a certain level of time to mm-hmm. it. I think like this whole mission or this whole segment or whatever, you can't just you know that in five minutes 
it, you can't just leave. And I'll probably end up playing Spelunky for an hour and a half or something. But the idea that I could just leave after five minutes kind of makes it easier to jump into it without having to commit at the same time. I have the same issue with movies. Like, I just don't watch movies. For, like, I can't commit two hours. And then I play video games for three hours instead. Um, so I, it's kind of a mental thing more so than an actual free time thing for me. But, yeah. And, and all of that is kind of negated, I think, because I just started playing Yakuza 0. Um just for fandom on my Twitter finally got to me um, and it just looked like a good place to start. So I'm actually really enjoying that. It's almost more like just watching TV than playing a video game, but in a kind mm-hmm. of satisfying way. I've always been a massive fan of um, Binary Domain, which I believe is made by the Yakuza team as well. Mm-hmm. And they just like capture these real like mundane characters in a really, really nice way. Like these characters that are both larger than life, but just wholesomely mundane at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's as true for um, Binary Domain and its big corny sci-fi shooter as it is for um, Yakuza games. So, yeah, we'll see if I commit to that for a long t- for a long period or not. Yeah, no, the, it's funny because I, I never thought that, you know, um, I would say a phrase like, this game is stressing me out. Because, like, you know, I'm like, I, I've got uh, Breath of the Wild on my shelf that's barely untouched, that's untouched almost, you know, just mm-hmm. these massive games that, you know, it, yeah. It, yeah. Totally. Yeah, I feel that. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and uh, so, and I, and I guess kind of, you know, because I know you're, you know, you're in game studies and then we're kind of, I guess we're mm-hmm. going to get into that a little bit. Um, so, I mean, what, what would you say led you to focus on games as a, as a research object? I mean, I mean, you know, you know, obviously you enjoy them and all that, but like, mm-hmm. you know, was there anything, you know, um, just kind of like walk us through your sort of like path to game studies, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I guess it was kind of two parallel things happening at once, which I guess was probably my undergraduate study and kind of a back, really kind of typical Bachelor of Arts, essentially in, primarily in, in cultural studies. And at the same time, getting really into writing about video games critically in a popular manner for originally my blog and then for websites as a freelance journalist. Um, and so when I was in undergrad in the late 2000s, um, or mid-2000s and then late-2000s, I suppose. Um, as part of my Bachelor of Arts undergrad at the University of Queensland, um, it's doing like these film study subjects and these television study subjects with lecturers who are just applying this kind of critical theoretical rigour to these real, um, I guess, lowbrow popular cultural objects, whether that was reality TV or some... Um, schlocky Tarantino film or something and just treating it with the same rigor as you would see for like literature or theater or something. And I found that really kind of amazing. It it wasn't just like um, apologetic, like fan stuff, like, Oh, this is amazing. And I can name, I don't know, every minor Jedi character in star Wars or some shit like that. But it was, it could like, it could like embrace this pop cultural work that, primarily existed for commercial reasons it could still figure out it could it could still articulate what that was doing to culture and to society as both creative and commercial work and I really appreciated that um, but at the same time I was really frustrated that in these subjects I was doing that were approaching pop culture theoretical rigor like video games this was like never mentioned like no one ever talked about video games as as popular culture or as requiring the same theoretical rigor as film or whatnot um, but at the same time, the theories we'd be learning, um, particularly phenomenology, which 
kind of underpinned the first book I wrote. I was like, everything we're learning about this in relation to film just seems so much more relevant or, or as relevant to, to games. How are we not talking about this? And so I guess my pathway into thinking critically about games is really taking the theories and the frameworks um, and the critical lenses I learned from cultural studies, media studies, um, that broad area of disciplines um, and being like, well, how can we use this to talk about games as, as cultural artifacts or as a part of culture as well? Um, and so from that way, I went, you know, trying to write several essays that I was told to write about films and I ended up writing about games, taking that sideways. And then I, I suppose I discovered game studies was a thing that was happening, that there were like large debates around whether video games were games or stories, which um, weren't that useful in the long run, but were kind of formative to the field at the time. And just found my yeah, just found myself in game studies that way. And while at the same time applying that rigor to my popular critical writing. And then the short version of how I became a full-time academic was I started getting paid full-time to do academic work before I started getting paid full-time to do non-academic work. So that's that's the way I went. Um, yeah, and I, and I suppose that's given me like game studies as an academic discipline is a very broad church. And it's also kind of strange in that it's defined by its object of study. Like there's not really many academic disciplines that are around that orbit the object, normally they orbit a methodology or an, or an approach or a theoretical framework or something. So for the idea of all researchers who research games to be in one discipline is strange. It doesn't really work. So you have game researchers who are over in like IT or computer science who have a very, very different interest in video games research than I do as a cultural studies theorist who's more interested in, um, I don't know, ideology, political economy, experiences of players, labor, textual analysis, and those kind of things. I'm not interested in how can we make a better shader or how can we sell more video games in this market or whatnot. Um, or then you have like the sociology education people who are like, how can we better use games in a classroom or, or the opposite of that or strangely related to that is the, how can we stop video games from creating murderers, which in both those bodies of literature I find just as reductive as each other. But, are video games awesome or are video games evil? It's like, yes, they're both because they're culture. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's where I got to. No, yeah, it's really funny. You're, um, that, that sounds like very, very similar to my path, the, how I got into game studies too. You know, uh, yeah, it was a lot of undergrad theory courses, you know, uh, you know taking film classes. And, and you know, I, I was dead set on going to grad school to be a Joycean. Um, and mm -hmm. then I got here and, and um, I was sort of like, oh, uh, I kind of just discovered game studies, you know, kind of tangentially as I was working with film in particular, because I want to do something with like Joyce and film and I kind of just, mm -hmm. and then I was kind of looking at my games library. I was sort of like, huh, I wonder if I can just write about all these, these games I used mm -hmm. to play. Um, and I kind of, and yeah, it's kind of the research questions that I kind of started getting interested in, kind of like with, um, you know, trying to figure out like the relationship between like games, culture, postmodernity, neoliberalism, and all these things that's kind of, you know, led me to that path as well. And, and yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, and it's, it's funny, you know, for me, cause when I, um, you know, cause I, cause I just recently took my um, qualifying exams. And so I was reading all about some of the um, debates and early game studies you were talking about. And, and it's there, it's funny to read now, you know, as you're saying some of these, uh, you know, really formative debates about like our games stories or, you know, and so, yeah, it was, it was funny, especially coming in um, with that 
um, really that critical theory background, um, you know, to game studies and, and kind of like seeing that and, and just sort of, yeah. So I, that was, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah, it was kind of just interesting to, from that, from that cultural studies background to kind of get into it that way. Yeah. But, and there's also like things around that debate in particular, but just academic debates generally that are, they're, they're almost a proxy war for academics in different institutions trying to secure funding or trying to um, figure out where within the university structure should, should a new undergrad program sit and whatnot. And so a lot of that early game studies debates was really around, and I, I wasn't there for them, so I can't speak to specifics, but was really around who gets to research video games within the academy and who gets to teach video games within the academy? Like, is it, do the cultural studies people or the narratology literature people get to do it or does the computer science school get to do it? And those are still kind of like ongoing debates in I think nearly any university that teaches and researches video games in some way. At my university, there's computer science researchers doing game studies, which, which I never talk to because we just have absolutely nothing to do or nothing in common beyond the fact we both research video games. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's, there's those strange things are still happening. And those early debates were really part of that. And there's also an interesting, there's kind of a generational shift in game studies a bit to, to paint it with a very broad stroke, where that first generation of game studies was largely people who are already academics in other fields trying to figure out how to, how to approach video games as this new media object, which is different and poses interventions in how we think about things um whereas i think for the again very broad strokes for i guess for millennial academics on such as myself video games weren't necessarily this discrete new thing they were like just the other black box sitting next to the vcr player as we grew up um so we video games were less this new weird media that required kind of unique ways of understanding and more just part of our media pop cultural ecosystem that we'd grown up in. And so I think, I think there was a shift away from, we need new models to understand this too. How does this fit within the models we already have? Like video games kind of became more mundane in game studies, I think mm -hmm. around the same time I was coming through. Yeah, yeah no, and, and in fact, kind of some of the things you're saying there, it, it makes me um, think of, you know, cause in, in your, in your book, um, uh, Play of Bodies, which um, I, I'm more familiar with than, um, than the other with the kill, the whatever, the um, uh, killing is harmless. Yeah. So, um, it, what's What's interesting to me, and actually, um, is this is this idea that's central to your to your research um, with phenomenology, um, mm -hmm. and 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 I think you know because I I've not a, you know I, I've studied phenomena phenomenology a little bit, but maybe it would help maybe if you could define it for us in, in very general terms because I, I I remember studying phenomenology um, in undergrad and reading about like you know uh, Husserl and all these people and I was sort of like I kind of get this <laughs> but um, yeah. so yeah I'm kind of curious how how you define uh, phenomenology and, and kind of you know what what makes it a useful intervention for um, your for games in particular yeah for sure um, where to start I guess I'd start with a caveat that I wouldn't consider myself a phenomenologist so much as someone who used phenomenology. So my understanding of it probably is still quite selective in terms of which parts of it I decided to use myself. Um, so I primarily use the work of um, French theorist uh, Malou, um, 
yeah, Milu Ponti. Mm-hmm. I generally avoid the theories of um, Martin Heidegger in part because he's absolutely incoherent to read and in part because <laughs> he was a Nazi. Yeah. Um, and it's, you, it's always fine to, to not cite Nazis. Um, totally. But, but yeah, so through the work of Milu Ponti, at least with phenomenology, it's, it's essentially a... Uh, one of many, I suppose, theories that tries to move away from this artificial distinction between mind and body as though we're all like that alien in Men in Black. Where there's that alien, I always think of that alien in Men in Black as just a tiny alien sitting in a cockpit head of a human shaped robot who's just steering a robot around. Yeah, and I feel like that's the, that's the mind body dualism. This idea that we're just like tiny cockpits in this <laughs> flesh vehicle that we just drive around, but ourselves our sense of who we are and our identity is just this like immaterial thing and behind our eyeballs um and phenomenology kind of um goes against that by talks about how our sense of who we are our sense of identity our sense of subjectivity how we know ourselves as beings in the world is fundamentally formed by our embodied perception of the world as as physical beings in the world so that so, so your so attributes of your physicality that it would include um, gender, ethnicity, class, um, where in the world you live, um, all these things would influence who you understand yourself to be and what you understand the world to be. And, and I guess that's kind of what phenomenology gets at. Um, I guess Milu Ponte is generally less concerned with those kind of, I guess, political aspects than he is with he uses a lot of examples, say, um, when you're driving a car and you look at a narrow road and you go, oh, I can fit in there, not my car can fit in there. Mm-hmm. Because our sense of who we are, there isn't a hard border around our physical body that says, this is me and this is not me. But rather, who we think we are is kind of distributed across how we perceive the world through um, apparatuses we take up and put down again. So that could be... Um, the glasses you wear or your shoes or a car or your walking stick or whatever. Um, and again, you, you can extrapolate that to, to also consider issues around gender, race, class, etc. cetera. Um, so so it, it essentially just decouples this dominant way of seeing the world, which was, has always been the rich white male way of seeing the world as... Um, I have freedom, I have personal choice, I have autonomy, I decide how the world works, and that is how the world works. And without going too off topic, you can, you can connect that dominant philosophy of how humans fit in the world with um, like colonialism, with um, slavery, with racism, with just like, this is the right way of being human in the world, which always just happened to be the rich white male way of being in the world. So ultimately what phenomenology does is allows you is among many other theories that try to do a similar thing challenges that dominant model that has often been accepted as natural or as common sense to be to point out how that is not natural and not common sense and instead constructed by physical by physical material and social elements um and all that said um feminists throughout the 20th century often were very critical of phenomenology because you can you can look at it as being quite normative in we have two legs and two arms and we can see through two eyes therefore that's how we understand the world it can come across as 
being quite normative. But in, in, I guess for late 20th century and early 21st century, um, a bunch of feminist theorists like Judith Butler, um, Donna Haraway, uh, and Catherine Hales and others started kind of figuring out how actually you could use phenomenology to show um, the material specificity of identity, subjectivity, and just how we understand the world. So, so to bring all of that back to games, when I was starting my PhD, um, this will connect eventually, I promise. When I was starting my PhD, on my, my research, I was really frustrated with what felt like in, in the literature in game studies, a lot of assumptions about how games work, a lot of very normative assumptions um, about players play video games, they love to be immersed. And if a video game has more polygons, then you can be more immersed. And if you use a Kinect instead of a gamepad, it's easier. Therefore, it's more immersive because you don't have to focus on the real world and games should be hard to keep the player challenged. Just these kind of like normative assumptions, which are often based on just how video games have been marketed for the last 20 years and not really based in any critical interrogation of why or how we play video games. Mm -hmm. So even like when people went and did interviews, I'd go and interview their 20 male students who all played video games and be like, hey, what makes a good video game? And the students would be like, guns and good graphics. And it's like, therefore, guns and good graphics are foundational to video games. Like, like just there wasn't that cultural studies nuance of like, how, how did this become normal? How did this become natural? So when I discovered phenomenology, which has been useful for others to unpick those normative assumptions or those naturalized assumptions about how we exist in the world, I realized that would be a really useful end for me to interrogate what I thought were a lot of unspoken assumptions about how video games work and how we play video games. So instead of just assuming, what's a good example, better graphics equals better immersion, I could go back and be like, well, well, what even is this idea of immersion? What does it mean to feel like we're fully in a video game? Do we ever actually feel like we're fully in a video game? Because we're constantly looking at menu items where like, pausing the menu we can, our dogs looking our foot while we're doing a mobile phone games we're on the bus trying to keep an eye for our bus stop at the same time mm-hmm. um there's that annoying fingerprint smear from the toddler on the tv while you're playing which you can't ignore or that you deliberately ignore so like so i use phenomenology in my book to, t- to look at how ideas like immersion don't just happen naturally but are instead the player deliberately working to be immersed and that has led to blind spots in game studies where we'll talk about what's happening on the other side of the screen but we won't talk about menu items or the HUD or the controller in the player's hands because as players we're used to deliberately ignoring those things to feel immersed so to speak mm-hmm. um, so phenomenology is like well let's take a step back and be like what is actually going on here what and how can that allow us to actually be a bit more critical about the video game experience in a way that then allows us to account for a broader range of video game experiences, not just for ones for AAA companies are trying to sell to us. Um, yeah, there we go. I, <laughs> oh, yeah, no, 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 that was great. No, I because it you're I have a million questions that because that's that was great. Um, no, because I remember from your from your book, I what really um, because I latched on to certain things, and I remember especially. I'm thinking about your idea of games as embodied texts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so, uh, and I think you more or less kind of talked about that just now, but like, I, I really, um, and I, and I guess this is me coming at this kind of maybe, you know, like, like you, you know, as a 
you know, cultural studies um, person, you know, hearing the word text, um, you know, and kind of that in relationship to video games has kind of had a weird history, you know, mm -hmm. and so I'm interested in kind of, you know, that, that's that term embodied text kind of, mm -hmm. you know, if you have more thoughts on that um, and kind of, you know, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Text is one of those weird words that just seems very um, obvious and simple, but then always just puts, gets you in a lot of trouble as well. And it definitely got me in a lot of trouble when I kept calling video games text. Same. Um, but <laughs> I mean, the, the simplest answer is a text is, um, what is a text? A text is a creative work that signifies something or symbolizes something, right? That's, that's essentially what it boils down to where a text is. Um, and video games do that. And like a lot of a lot of research, a lot of people will talk about video games primarily as as products or as content or as um, I don't know, artifacts or whatever. And they are all of those things. But that like if you start with video games as product, you're already only talking about the commercially made video games, which is like if you're in film studies and only talk about Hollywood. And like of course you need to talk about Hollywood, but that that's not all of film and TV. That that would be ridiculous. And video game studies, for reasons that I've gone into my more recent research, um, is kind of started with started with the industry as the full extent of a field and failed to go beyond that and said, well, this is this is what video games are. So there's since the beginning of game studies, there's long just been a um, very industry centric way of understanding it, which is their products. And by talking about them as text, you're kind of um, disrupting that and able to talk about them as first and foremost, these creative, expressive things that exist in the world that reflect something about culture and something about the ideas of the personal people who made them that then after their existence became commercialized and became structured to the wants of a market and whatnot. And it's very important to remember, like, video games existed before the video game industry existed. Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They, they didn't start with the industry. Video games were a creative form ever so briefly before they became a formalized commercial industry. And that raises all sorts of questions when you start thinking about it in that way. So thinking about them as text simply just means thinking about them as meaningful creative works that audiences have some kind of engagement with that generates meaning, I suppose. Mm -hmm. That's probably what that means. The embodied nature of it, or the embodied aspect of it, is that what I argue in the book is that the meaning produced through the textuality of video games is a meaning produced through your embodied perception of them, not just through your, I guess, intertextual, in, in, uh, intellectual interpretation of them. So often the textual analysis of video games reduces video games purely to their narrative elements or the content elements. What happens What happens in the video game story? The fact that you died on level 10 50 times kind of gets conveniently written out of the narrative of what happens on level 9, 10, 11 in a smooth transition in a way that, um, um, oh, who was it? Jeff King, I think I might have that name wrong, talked about as like what gets left on the editing cutting board of like the player's imagination after they finished the game. And like, as fear is like, well, no, the player did just spend 50 hours on level 10. That's part of the meaning of that game. Mm -hmm. And so the embodied textuality is trying to get at what are, the, what are the meanings of a video game that speak directly to our embodied perception and not to our 
I guess, intellectual facilities. So that could be the feeling of adrenaline in a racing game. That could be the, um, the way that the structure of Max Payne 3 and every time you finish a mission, you just make things worse, um, make you feel like this is all futile or hopeless. Um, there's, that, there's that emotional register, which at least in your primary experience of it, isn't intellectualized. It's not um, a character saying, oh, gee, capitalism is bad. It's mm -hmm. you embodying how shitty capitalism is when you play cart life and just actually experience poverty or something. So, so in some ways it's very related to like Bogost's idea of procedural rhetoric of how systems have meaning in them and kind of takes that further or in a different direction to say that like, the systems don't have inherent meaning in it. It's the interaction of your body with that system between your hands of a controller, um, the visuals and sounds that your eyes and ears are engaging with, the kind of the narrative content, all that mashed together allows you to perceive in an embodied manner what the game is, quote unquote, about or what its meaning is. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe no. that. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's really, it's it's because I took a... um a a film theory class one time and we and we kind of and it was and I, we there was often this kind of discussion of you know uh film is is affects and and mm -hmm. and kind of like as i was reading um your book and kind of look in thinking about embodied textuality it seemed like you know because uh, like because like i i think for me is is someone you know coming in uh mostly kind of as, as a film person I, I i tend to focus so much on the on the visuals of when I'm writing about games. And sometimes I'm like, oh wait, now I'm playing this. There's like, mm -hmm. I'm pressing, I'm pressing buttons. I need to. And so it was interesting to me thinking about just kind of like how it seems like in some ways you're really trying to get to like the, the affective sort of qualities of gaming. And, and in particular, uh, a line from your book that, that, that kind of stuck, stuck with me is, you know, where you're, where you say, um, oh, Grand Theft Auto felt, Grand Theft Auto 4 felt different. Them yeah. pre and 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 actually you know and actually i think that would be a good kind of you know for those who haven't read your book to kind of um go into that I mean, if you want to go into that example because i think that that was such a great illustration of i think you know what you were trying to do in the book um you know with with a claim like that it was just really fascinating to me yeah totally um it's just a, a really quick footnote before that where you mentioned affect at the same time i was writing this book um Aubrey Annabelle was writing her book, um, Playing With Feelings, which covers a lot of the same ground I cover, but from an affect theory perspective, not a phenomenology perspective. And there's a lot of parallels between both of them. So I strongly recommend checking that one out. Oh, but yeah, cool. the Grand Theft, sorry. But yeah, the Grand Theft Auto example. Um, yeah, so long as I wrote the books, I'm glad you reminded me of that. If you just think of the difference between Grand Theft Auto 3 and Grand Theft Auto 4, like, just what it feels like to move around in those games where and, and if you just talk about what are the mechanics of these games they're, they're exactly the same you run around you steal cars you drive cars you shoot people you do a series of missions spread out in this one consistent open world and etc cetera, etc cetera. if you talk about the narrative it's at, at a broad level it's largely the same you're a criminal and you do things for other criminals um but so gda4 i guess had the extra narrative component of like being this um, this illegal immigrant in in Liberty City in Nicobellic who um, 
you know, has this big idea of what the American dream is and has that destroyed very quickly. And it's overall just like a very pessimistic and cynical game. And, and it has no shortage of issues. Um, it was kind of of that time with develop, AAA developers are trying to figure out how to be serious while still keeping the 15-year-olds interested. So it has like fucking like your cousin just yelling out boobies every now and then. <laughs> but, just, but like despite that, there's this, there's this sense of like just heavy gravitas throughout the game of just like the depressing inevitable downfall of Nico in a way that I found really um, powerful at the time. Um, just like he doesn't want to be doing this, but there's no way out of this system, which some people could argue, well, the game doesn't give you a way out of that system. And neither should it, because that's not what the game is about. The game is about just like how incompatible the American dream is with that, um, I guess, that immigrant experience um, and um, capitalism and whatnot. And so, like, so that's at like the narrative level. But like, you think about just like moving in Grand Theft Auto Three, just moving that thumbstick. Um, the unnamed character, like or Cloud or whatever San Andreas called him, he holds his Uzi up in the air and he's just kind of like bouncing and jogging along, like all cavalier and everything's great and it's just this fun cartoony um romp it's just a good time in grand theft auto 3 you push forward on the same thumbstick and nico bellic just kind of walks really slowly and heavily down the street there's a bit of a delay between when you start pushing it forward and he kicks up that momentum to start moving um and like if you want to run you have to hold down another button and even then he doesn't run that fast um, you get hit by a car and like Nico's body just like collapses, just like like a mm -hmm. sack of meat. It's not like thrown comically through the air thanks to the physics engine and whatnot. And, and the point is about one of these is better or worse than the other. Like I hate reading games that he says, thanks to the advanced physics engine that used to not be available, now we can finally do this. So like that's that's a terrible point. The point is that GTA 3 went for a particular feeling, which was cartoony, juvenile um irreverent humor and gta 4 try to shift that towards heavy somber gravitas but was still conflicted with the juvenile aspects of it and so i say in the book that the gravitas of gta 4 can't be disconnected from the gravity you feel in the heaviness of playing gta 4 that mm -hmm. bodies feel heavier cars and collisions feel heavier and slower and more like um sluggish um and that rather than that just being, uh, and, and I think I quote Edge Magazine's review, um, which was a really, really wonderful review. If it's still available online, it's probably not because Edge removed all their stuff from online, thanks to future publishing being trash. But um, <laughs> um, yes, so like they just talk about the heaviness of this game compared to the previous ones. And, and yeah, and that is so fundamental to what that game is, again, quote unquote, about. It's not just the story of Nico Bellic. It's the story of Nico Bellic in relation to what it feels like to steer Nico Bellic or to impartially embody Nico Bellic in this world. Um, and, yeah, so that gravity and that gravitas are fundamentally intertwined in what it means, in, in what GTA 4 is about, if GTA 4 is about anything. Um, yeah. No, it's it's so funny because because I, I I remember enjo really enjoying your your tweet storm about Death Stranding because mm -hmm. which is is if GTA Four is heavy, you know, uh, Death Stranding. I mean, you're just making me think of just sort of like how heavy, like literally, you know, a yeah. game like Death Stranding is. Um, you know, totally. yeah. And Death Stranding is a great example because often I think what I'm trying to like fight against in that book is this like discourse which you see in popular game discourses 
as much as you see it in um, academic ones is Death Stranding was a good example, and but No Man's Sky is the exemplary one because they. But what do you do in this game? Like, what's the point? And the point is the embodied experience. The point. The point of No Man's Sky is the sense of like utter sheer loneliness and this massive world that you will never successfully map, and that pissed off a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, um, for for death, the point of Death Stranding is just to feel really small and feel the trudging monotony of this world as you try to get from one place to another and it's like and it's just this like stunningly beautiful experience but if you're trained to expect a certain level of um i don't know agency in a video game which we audiences have come to assume is what video games are about then it then it seems silly and it seems like you can't understand what the point is um i think a, a great example was this i gave um which was some like first person walking simulator. I think it was Increpare's um, Dinner for Two, which, which is irrelevant. It's just one of those tiny, mm-hmm. somber, slow walking simulators where you're just in a few rooms moving around. And when I was teaching game dev, I was like, I get my students to play the games in front of a class. And then as a class, we talk about it. And I gave a student this game to play. And they were just playing it like it was fucking like Counter Strike or something. <laughs> like, jumping and swiveling around corners and doing these spins to check behind them and just moving in all these weird ways. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, but for them, that, that was for them the only way they knew how to experience a first-person space was as an action first-person shooter. They, they didn't have a literacy to engage with a first-person space other than through, like, moving quickly and shooting things while avoiding being shot. And that, I think, is exemplary of this broader issue we have in games culture where the dominant normative text have become so dominant, large sectors of the player base think that's just naturally what's good. That is anything that isn't that must be bad. Anything that is that is good. And so then they encounter something slightly out there like Death Stranding or No Man's Sky or something more out there like a Twine game. Mm-hmm. And they just don't, they're unable to, to get it because it's not about complex systems or it's not about uh, consequential choices that you made of your agency but it's about a different kind of embodied experience of the video game. And so what I hope a player bodies and body textuality does is kind of flattens that playing field a bit where instead of being like, does this game give me agency or is this game interactive? Yes or no. Um, it allows you to say, what is the embodied experience this game is trying to achieve by inter- by interfacing with my body, I suppose. Yeah. Or, no, it, yeah, you're right. Cause I've kind of, you know, I, you know, as someone who kind of, you know, worked with a lot of like experimental films and, uh, you know, in undergrad and, and throughout grad school, I, I was, you know, kind of wondering, you know, like, when you get into like extremely, you know, like experimental games, you know, um, like I, um, I played, um, if you remember the, the beginner's guide, um, mm-hmm. if you, and, and, and kind of when you, you're like, you get a tour through, you know, the, these games that, seem like they should be a Godard film, you know, yeah. and kind of the embodied experience of that kind of experimental textuality was, is really, was really fascinating to me. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and so, yeah, I was, you're just making me think, you know, as we, you know, deconstruct kind of like what games are supposed to be, you know, and that game was really formative for me in doing that, you know, I mean, totally. like, yeah, sort of like, yeah. why do, why do we have to have, you know, ninjas and, and, and grenades? Mm-hmm game although those things are awesome they don't have to be in every game <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. yeah, it's just like not all films are Michael Bay action films. Yeah. Or, or I guess these days better now to be a Marvel film. Like, absolutely, it's a great time to watch a Marvel film or a Michael Bay film, I guess, depending on which one you choose. But, like, <laughs> that's not the extent of the media form that is cinema. Whereas, and, and nor should it be, like, the measuring stick against which you measure the rest of cinema, like how many explosions are there or whatnot. Yet in video game discourses, both popular and academic, we've hit this point... Well, we hit this point, I think, most in the late 2000s, early 2010s, um, where the measuring sticks we'd been using for about a decade or two were from the Michael Bay films and the Marvel films. And we reached a point in the early 2010s where it, became, it had become so much easier to make and share video games, especially for more marginalized people, that these measuring sticks were just so... The incompatibility of them with the, with the broader video game form became exposed very, very sharply. Um, and you see like the, the massive debates and harassment campaigns that exa- happened in the early 2010s that eventuated in Gamergate in various ways all mm-hmm. kind of boiled down to sexism and misogyny, but like to, I guess, a broader issue of like an established gamer audience that thought video games were one thing, suddenly having to confront the fact that video games was actually this much broader thing that what they care about is just a subset of and realizing their measuring sticks were, inc- were useless unless you, all you ever watch is Marvel films. And so we've, that's been a real challenge for games discourse over the last decade, confront, confronting that um, thanks to the games that have been made by for fringe audiences that were quite invisible for the decades before that. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, because it's funny because, you know, if we, I always love reading reviews of like a game like, um, you know, Gone Home and and, yeah. and and referring to it as a walking simulator is meant to be an insult, <laughs> you, know, you know, and so, yeah, no, that's interesting, you know, yeah, um, you know, as a fellow, you know, millennial uh, male growing up in those discourses, you know, uh, where it's like, you know, growing up thinking that Halo 2 was the pinnacle of gaming experience, you know, I can understand, you know, getting to a game for you know you know like gone home for example and you're like what where where's what are we doing what are we doing here we're just walking <laughs> totally totally and it's just like massive other people like graham kirkpatrick um among others have done these great historical um studies of just like game magazines from like the early 80s onwards that just show where some of the like key terms we use well like the gamer identity for one which has been vastly crit- critiqued and interrogated by other people but like the word gameplay just like emerges in these magazines around the same time of a gamer identity as this like unique very male subcultural identity gets formed and the word gameplay starts getting used by game magazines of the late 80s early 90s to distinguish games both from other software and from other media like film and tv but also to give the newly baptized gamer a unique aesthetic language that is theirs that their parents don't understand or that the casual player doesn't understand, um, you know, and through like lines, like I'm sure everyone has heard, like, I don't care about graphics, just gameplay. These kind of like yeah. elitist sounding kind of um, gatekeeping claims really like what the fuck is gameplay? That doesn't mean anything. What, what, it, what it means is like um, when people talk about gameplay, they're talking about specific kinds of systems that are highly responsive to the player. So then when people say Gone Home has no gameplay or Journey has no gameplay or Twine Games have no gameplay, 
uh, or No Man's Sky has no gameplay. Like, it, it's this absurd statement, which really just means these games lack the one mode of being a video game that I'm capable of understanding. Mm. Um, and, and so it served this purpose to kind of distinguish the field of video games through the 90s and into the 2000s and now is entirely incapable um, of accounting for that broader field and instead just becomes this really like normative gatekeeping. Games must have gameplay where gameplay is, again, it's like saying films must have a Marvel superhero. Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't actually work. Um, yeah, so, so like other people have done this much better historic analysis, which I'm indebted to in this book, but don't fully go into mm-hmm. of just how all these, all these frames of reference, which we think are just natural for what makes a good video game, were all socially constructed in the last mm-hmm. few decades, largely by um, vested interests in the commercial game industry, trying to formalize an audience that would buy Assassin's Creed 28 and Call of Duty 23 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, to stress, I play those games, I love those games, but the industry has a vested interest in us thinking the industry is the full extent of the video game field. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is a lot to be gained from being very critical of that and interrogating that and being like, what don't they want us to look at? What don't they, what video games does the industry not benefit from us playing, but Mm -hmm. which are valuable for the field all the same? Yeah, no, I really, I like, I, I kind of like, you know, the, with, with, when I teach film, you know, it's always sort of, you know, where, where, like you mentioned this earlier, kind of like, you know, yes, we have to talk about Hollywood, but films are not limited to Hollywood. And so, yeah. and so, yeah, it's, it's interesting teaching because I taught one course on games and um, it, I think I told you about it, the metagaming course and, and yeah. And, and like when I teach film, it was kind of so much of the course involved, you know, trying to, you know, question some of these assumptions, like, like, like I do when I teach film, like, you know, well, what even is a film and, and how, why do we think that, you know, what, what narrative expectations do we have? And, and yeah, and really, and what I really liked about your book too, is kind of getting into like some of the, really like kind of the, the materiality of games mm-hmm. and kind of like all of these, like, in a sense, um, hidden histories in, in a sense. Um, and I know mm-hmm. we've talked, yeah, we've talked about, um, you know, like I really, um, uh, the, the metagaming book, um, for mm-hmm. example, the, uh, you know, I really, I think that those lines of discourse are really fascinating. Um, but yeah, totally. It's, it's kind of just been a shift in game studies through a range of authors. Like it's not just me or I let saying like often in academia, you'll see a bunch of books come out at the same time that have all identified the same problem in a field and have approached it from different directions. And yeah, metagaming by um, Stephanie Bollock and Pat- Patrick Lemieux is just a, such a spectacular, dense, impossible book that like, I think is more confusing and perplexing than it is anything. I I couldn't tell you what the point is, but it's just a staggeringly good read, which I think does such justice to, to, to the, the creative form of the video game without falling into some bullshit fandom um, crap. Like, like if you think video games are art, that means not just like worshiping, the most commercially successful games, it means like these deep, critical, challenging, esoteric debates around around like the shape of a skybox in Half-Life or like um or like blind Zelda speedruns and just this much broader field. And and metagaming, yeah, is such a spectacular book, which I can't recommend enough for that reason. Um and then yeah, other books like um um 
or Brianna Bell's um, Playing with Feeling or um, Deshana Germain's book. Um, oh man, I just blanked on the name of it. Um, about, um, sorry, you can, you can cut out this silence. Uh, oh no, don't worry about it. <laughs> one second. I'm just going to get it. Um, yeah, Deshana Germain's book, Performativity in Art Literature and Video Games, oh, okay. which like, um, again, is a very dense book, but connects video games to theatre and Baroque art in all sorts of ways, which um, has actually been done quite a lot in Australian game studies, but not I don't see it much elsewhere. Um, and I think of the question, but yeah, these, these books, there's just some, there's just, there was a, a vibe, dare I say, in game studies, I think, around the mid-2010s onwards, as all these changes were happening in the pop popular discourse about we need new frameworks or we need uh, well, not even new frameworks, sorry. We need we need to stop making new frameworks and apply this, like, century of rigorous, critical cultural studies and media studies and art history frameworks that have done fine for every other new medium that's come along. We need to stop and go back and be like, well, what can these tell us about video games or how are they disrupted by video games? And so I've done that with phenomenology. Um, Annabelle did that with... Um, Affect theory, um, um, Bollock and Lemieux did that with God, like everything all at once. <laughs> yeah, um, all of it. All of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and all of them together are just like adding so much nuance and specificity to the understandings of what the video game form or medium is, while also not reductively saying video games are like unique or somehow radically removed from film tv music theater and all these things in some way that those are not unique from each other um which is a real game of fan academic way of being like games now make more money than film and therefore they're more important sucked in film studies friends and like yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> never mind the fact as an aside those stats always include like console sales and never include dvd player sales or tv sales so <laughs> So the idea that video games make more money than films is actually complete bollocks as well. But anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I always love that appeal too. There's just like, this makes more money. So therefore it is now the superior medium. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, looks like we're about at time. I don't want to, you know, I really, I don't want to keep you too long, but this was really, really fantastic stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so um, I, so for those, for those listening, um, if, if you want, you know, more, I don't know, I think you're off your Death Stranding tweets, but if you if you want more just sort of gr um, gr uh, great content, uh, you can follow Brendan on uh, on Twitter. I do. It's 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 fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great content as well as a lot of questionable content. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some, yeah. Of it, some of it's great. Yeah. And then um, if you want um, more content like this, um, you can find Gamers With Glasses. We have a um, Facebook page um, and a Twitter. I um, mean, so if you just Google us, we should be like the first result now. But um, but yeah, and so thank you so much um, to everyone for listening, and thanks Brendan for for agreeing to the interview. And and yeah, and so hopefully you know we'll see everyone next time. So. Nice, thank you. All right, thanks. Mm -hmm.